The 18-year-old Plantagenet prince has a smirk on his face. He's in a foreign land, but he's surrounded by a crowd of his friends and followers, all of them nudging one another and trying to hold their giggles in. They're in Waterford, in the south of Ireland, waiting for a group of powerful tribal leaders to come and meet them. This should be a serious political occasion, but to Prince John and his mates, it's all a bit of a hoot. They're rich, privileged, and, in their own minds at least, sophisticated posh boys. John's dad is the mighty King Henry II. They've come here under the royal banner to cajole the Irish into publicly demonstrating their respect for Plantagenet authority. Unfortunately, the thrill of pushing people around has gone straight to their heads. One eyewitness, the chronicler Gerald of Wales, has been sent with John to keep an eye on him. He later writes how the Irish chieftains arrive ready to honour their visitor. Men hitherto loyal to the English and disposed to be peaceable came to congratulate him as their new lord and receive him with the kiss of peace. But when John and his buddies spot these leaders approaching, their first thought isn't how friendly and welcoming the Irish are being. Instead, they fall about laughing. Why? Because to them, these foreigners look hilarious. In Ireland, the fashion for men is to wear your beard as long and shaggy as possible. It's a mark of masculinity and dignity. That's not the case in the Plantagenet world of England and France. Where John and his mates come from, no one wears their beard long. The in look is to keep your beard cropped to just an inch or two. That's it. I know, it's pretty pathetic stuff. But it's enough to set John and his lackeys into hysterics. They're literally laughing in the Irishmen's faces. And John doesn't stop there. As Gerald of Wales puts it, Our newcomers not only treated the Irish with contempt and derision, but even rudely pulled them by their beards. Yep, you heard that right. John physically gets a handful of another man's beard and gives it a good hard yank. I mean, in the wrong place, that kind of behaviour could get you killed today, let alone back in the 12th century. But John knows no one's going to kill him. No one's even going to lay a finger on him. He's the son of Henry II, and he reckons he's invincible. He can do whatever he likes, and what John likes is to be mean and snide and snarky. He loves to make fun of people, best of all when they can't fight back. He's a bully. He's also very politically ignorant. These Irish chieftains might not be able to raise their hands to him, but they can make his stay in Ireland very uncomfortable. Which is what they decide to do. Having stoically endured their humiliation, they go off on a tour of their neighbouring rulers and tell them exactly what John is like. According to Gerald of Wales, they spread the word that they found John to be a mere boy surrounded by others almost as young as himself, that he abandons himself in juvenile pursuits, and they saw promised no mature or stable counsel, 
no security for the peace of Ireland. In other words, if this is what the future of Plantagenet rule looks like, then no thank you. In Ireland at this time, the locals tend to do a lot of fighting among themselves. But tales of John's insolence and his beard-tugging are annoying enough to unify them against him. The Irish agree to put aside their beefs and take a stand together against this Plantagenet pipsqueak. Nice work, young John. He's been sent here by his father with a simple mission. Remind the Irish who's boss, take their oaths of allegiance, and have a think about whether this is somewhere he'd like to rule all by himself one day. Yet John has barely set foot on Irish soil, and he's already turned virtually everyone against him. Gerald of Wales makes the excuse that he's young, dumb, and full of bad advice. But as we'll find out, upsetting people is John's forte. His political career begins with tugging Irish warriors' beards. It'll end with the Plantagenet Empire on its knees. I'm Dan Jones, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is history. A dynasty to die for. Episode 19, Lackland. Over the course of this series, we've got to know Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine's older children fairly well. Too well, you might say. But who was John? Well, he was the youngest of the seven surviving kids, born on Christmas Eve 1166. He grew up partly in England, spending a bit of his childhood in the household of his eldest brother, Henry the Young King. We don't know loads about what John was like as a kid, we do know his education was overseen by one of Henry II's most brilliant administrators, Ranulf Glanville. And as I mentioned last time, John shared his dad's passionate interest in admin. They both knew that in the boring details of tax policy, real power can be found. But as for his personality as a boy, since he's the baby of the family, no chroniclers really bother to take any notice. Yet there is one story I think is worth repeating, even though the source is shady. It comes from a famous medieval outlaw story, based very loosely on a real-life nobleman-turned-Robin Hood type called Fulk Fitzwarren. According to this tale, before Fulk was an outlaw, he was a childhood companion of John's in the royal nursery. One day, he and John were playing chess, and John got into a sulk about something, picked up the board, and whacked Fulk with it. Naturally, Fulk didn't like that, so he got up and booted John in the stomach. John fell over, banged his head on the wall, and fainted. Fulk apparently managed to wake him up by rubbing his ears, weirdly, and then John ran straight off to tell on Fulk to his dad, the king. At this point, Fulk was absolutely bricking it, but Henry was having none of John's whining. He told off John for squabbling and said that Fulk was well within his rights to have kicked him. Then Henry called the tutor and ordered that John was whipped. 
not quite the outcome that John was expecting. It's a great story, and it gets John the adult bang on. But that's also the doubt I have about it. John, as an adult, is a bully and a whinger. Does that mean he's the same as a child? The tale is written with so much hindsight that it's hard to tell. The other problem with this story is Henry's role in it. I just can't see him having John whipped. Because what we do know for sure is that John is unquestionably his dad's favourite child. Why? Maybe because of that love for number crunching. Maybe because he's the baby. Or maybe because he's the only one of the boys who hasn't given Henry any grief during the two family wars. But whatever the reason, Henry loves John the best. And he makes it his mission to find a plum job for him when he grows up. As we've heard, Henry jokingly calls the boy Jean Santerre, usually translated into English as John Lackland. He's not being mean. He's recognising that it's on him, as John's dad, to make sure he's John Lotzerland as soon as possible. Which runs the family into trouble. Lots of trouble. Think about the war without love. What kicked it off? Old Henry tried to give John three castles that young Henry thought were his. Now think of the early months of 1185, after young Henry dies. What got Richard so worked up that old Henry had to whip Eleanor out of jail? Yep, old Henry tried to kick Richard out of Aquitaine so he could give it to John, then 18 years old. And that's what brings us to the mess in Ireland. Henry is casting about for somewhere to get John set up. He could have sent him off to Jerusalem, but Henry can't bear the idea of his baby boy going so far away. So Ireland it is. If John gets it right, Henry thinks he can stay there, keeping the peace between the warring locals and the equally troublesome English and Welsh settler lords. Henry could then lobby the Pope to confirm that Ireland is a full-blown kingdom. And, hey presto, John would get a crown. All John needs to do is just not mess it up. Unfortunately, John is shaping up to be a world-class messer-upper of things. Just ask the angry Irish tribal leaders with chunks missing from their beards and vengeance on their minds. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
and listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash dynasty. Indeed.com slash dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. So what happens to John in Ireland? Other than Gerald of Wales, no chronicler is on the scene, and so the reports that survive are patchy and garbled. What seems to go down is this. Having upset the locals, John now has to try and stamp Plantagenet authority on Ireland by force rather than charm. Old Henry had sent him to Ireland with a massive wad of cash to spend there, hiring mercenaries, bribing allies and building castles. He also backed him with heavily armoured knights, which was all well and good, or it would have been under a more competent leader. But unlike, say, his elder brother Richard, John hasn't spent his teens learning how to battle the hard way, crushing rebellions and smashing down castles. In fact, he has no meaningful fighting experience at all. As for the money... John may have been an accountant at heart, but at this point he's also a kid, out on tour with his mates. So in fairly short order, he fritters the money away, having a good time. In any case, even if John had been an experienced campaigner and had been committed to spending every last penny of his dad's money on fighting rather than partying, subduing Ireland would still be a struggle. Fighting here is messy business. The terrain tends to suit guerrilla raiding and skirmishes better than tournament-style nightly charging. Gerald of Wales sums this problem up neatly in a passage which implies that he doesn't think much at all of John's military tactics. In fighting against naked and unarmed men, whose only hope of success lies in the impetuosity of their first attack, he means ambushes, Men in light armour can pursue the fugitives, an agile race, and cut them down in narrow passes and among crags and mountains. But John's men, he says, with their complex armour and their deeply curved saddles, find great difficulty in getting on and off horseback, and still greater when occasion requires that they shall march on foot. In other words, the Plantagenet forces are heavy and slow, unable to fight in the forests and mountains against fast-moving enemies who know the terrain. The upshot of all this is that John's time in Ireland in 1185 is a bit of a shambles. By Christmas, he has to abandon the mission and come back to old Henry with his tail between his legs. John being John, of course, he doesn't admit that the failure of his campaign was anything to do with him. Instead, he complains that he'd been constantly undermined by a guy called Hugh de Lacey, an English nobleman and royal official who had settled in Ireland years before. 
It's certainly true that de Lacey is an abrasive character who has high ambitions for himself in Ireland and makes enemies easily. So easily, in fact, that a year later, in 1186, an Irishman called Gilligan O'Maddock murders him with an axe. But for John to lay all the blame for his total failure in Ireland on Hugh de Lacey is laughable. At the end of the day, he messed up and his incompetence has foiled his dad's carefully laid plans for the future. How exactly can old Henry find a job for his useless but beloved son? As the family celebrates Christmas in 1185, this question must be keeping Henry awake at night. At some point in the new year, Henry decides that the only thing he can do is to try and pack John back off to Ireland to have another go. It's hardly a genius move, but at this point, Henry is out of options. Yet John doesn't go back to Ireland, because in the summer of 1186, fate throws another gigantic curveball at the Plantagenets. That curveball, or should it be a wrecking ball, is about to smash into the most powerful members of the family, bringing their feuding to a spectacular climax. That's all coming up on This Is History. As always, if you're craving more Plantagenet drama, I've got you covered. Join me on This Is History Plus, where every Thursday I release an extra episode revealing the weird details, fun facts and fascinating subplots we don't have time for in the main story. And on top of that, as a subscriber, you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast.